Hello and welcome to the podcast of the Prison Officers Association, the UK's largest professional union for prison, correctional and secure psychiatric workers with over 30,000 members. In this episode, we talk to Stuart McLaughlin, a long-standing POA member at HMP Wandsworth and the inspiration behind and curator of the Wandsworth Prison Museum. I met Stuart in the museum itself, which is in the prison's car park, and I started by asking him how it all began. Well, Stuart McLaughlin, we are in your lair, your your Aladdin's cave of the Wandsworth Prison Museum, and it is an incredible collection, an incredible collection. Um, how did it start? It uh, goes back as far as uh, 2001, when Wandsworth Prison celebrated 150 years. We agreed that we'd put on a temporary display of history in what was then the uh, training building, which had been the former governor's house. And although I did ask if we could keep it as a permanent display, space was too much of a premium, so everything had to go into storage or return to the museums where we had items on loan from. Right. A few years later, having uh, seen a number of museums that I'd donated items to close, I decided to ask again if we could have a permanent display of Wandsworth Prison history items. The original museum was set up in the garage next door to the governor's house, but when they decided to uh, sell that house with the garage where my museum was housed, I had to find a new location. And that fortunately meant that I could get uh, a building from Kirkham where they were making prefabricated wooden buildings for free. All you needed to do was place the order and one would be delivered. So one was ordered... We put it in this location here in the prison car park. It still needed planning permission from the council. There was a bit of a delay in getting the building kitted out and with the electrics put in. But once that was done, I was open for business and Prince Michael of Kent came back because he opened the first mm-hmm, museum mm-hmm. to uh, open this brand new building. Oh, that's, that's good. That's a nice touch, I think. Yeah, there was uh, a connection with uh, Prince Michael of Kent. His father, from the records, uh, looks like he was uh, the first official royal visitor so that was Prince George, the Duke of Kent, in 1936. Gosh, gosh, but even by the time you get to 1936, the prison, that was 85 years old, the prison yes. was by then, wasn't it? It's, I mean, it's been here a long time, a long time. Yes, 170 years this year. Gosh, gosh. And uh, I'm sure no POA members will need, will, will need me to describe what it's like, but it is your classic Victorian, very old, very solid not in any way modern looking building. No, obviously for the Victorians it was considered the model design of prison, uh, radiating wings from a central hub. That was copied from Pentonville, which in turn had been copied from Eastern State Penitentiary near Philadelphia. The radial pattern prison was not a British design, it was an American design which we copied. Uh, The prison service, which wasn't nationalised until 1878, did actually have the inspectors HM Inspectorate of Prisons were formed in the 1830s and they went over to America to have a look at this brand new design of prison and came back and said uh, this is how we should design our prisons in the future. So the second uh, set of inspectors uh, reports actually contained fold out diagrams of how prisons should be built depending on how many prisoners you wish to house in there and so you ultimately went from a single wing to a pair of wings Mm. to three wings to four and to a place like Wandsworth and Manchester, uh, two five wings. But how many prisons was it designed to hold? Uh, Wandsworth, after it had the two additional wings put on, you're looking at an operational capacity uh, back then of about a thousand. 
Right. I mean, the current uh, certified normal accommodation, what the prison is built for, is about 1,100. But they've squeezed in over over 1,600 on occasion. Goodness. So uh, it's quite stressful. Uh, but, of course, when the Victorians designed Wandsworth, it wasn't really to just keep a, a large population of people simply locked up for the sake of it. Uh, the average Victorian prisoner wouldn't really do a horribly long sentence because the Victorians would want them back out working building bridges, houses, railways. A prison record in Victoria times for for a working man or woman would have carried far less stigma than it would do today. And the work was there for them to do. Yeah. So in terms of the exhibits, um, which ones would you well, from, pull uh, out first of all? Well, from, uh, from, from, say from earliest days, uh, uh, the first governor here, Governor uh, Richard Onslow, he was actually uh, connected to the Onslow family of Surrey, who uh, there's obviously Onslow Village, yeah. numerous high sheriffs and lord lieutenants. But he had actually uh, trained as a barrister and he came out of Middle Temple. So we did have a legal background. And uh, curiously enough, there was um, a letter where he uh, mentions to the uh, to the Home Secretary where he shows statistics with a view to show the utter futility of short punishments in regard to the reformation of offenders or their prevention of crime and the serious expenses to which the county is put by repeated commitments. Now, of course, uh, I've taken extracts of that letter and asked yeah. various visitors, when do you think that was written? Because yes. it obviously refers to short sentence prisoners. You know, they're, they're a drain. With not a lot we can, can be done with them. And invariably, they usually put a date in the last uh, 10 years. When I point out it was actually written in 1859, the problem still remains with us. Indeed, I mean, and the detail that's in this letter that the governor's written to, uh, well, it's Walpole, wasn't it? It was the Secretary of State. 209 committed to, to Wandsworth twice, 43 three times, nine four times, two six times. I bet you get a range of answers that are, are probably about 100 years out sometimes. When you Quite often, that yes. They, they think it's actually far more recent, the issue of short-sentence prisoners, uh, yeah. and indeed sometimes, you know, uh, and the problems that come with it. So, moving on to more yes. uh, matters uh, staff side, I know that uh, in the 1890s, the, the prison commissioners, because uh, the prisons were nationalised in 1878, had uh, received some representation from the governor at Wandsworth that the, that the officers at Wandsworth uh, wanted to have some kind of uh, representative organisation that they could air their grievances and complaints. That's the earliest that I've come across. The time that uh, really did bring about... Uh, the idea of a trade union movement uh, within the forces of law and order came with the National Union of uh, Police and Prison Officers, NUPPO. And, I mean, my museum does display an original membership card. Sadly, it's not from uh, someone who was at Wandsworth, but it is a genuine membership card of that union and a very nice uh, you know, badge as well for, for NUPPO members. Obviously, they wouldn't have dared uh, wear the badge on any kind of uniform display. And they clearly you know, organised themselves and it was there actually in 1918 that led to a police officer's strike. Indeed, a number of prison officers also went out on strike. It was in uh, 1917, though, that uh, John Whitley was asked by the government to see if he could look in a way of uh, stabilising industrial relations. Uh, there was a lot of strike action during the Great War, or the First World mm. War, yeah, as, mm. it would, uh, as we call it today. And uh, Whitley was tasked with coming up with a mechanism to improve industrial relations. And indeed, the term Whitley still remains with us today. Indeed, it does. And it is a legacy from that particular time. Uh, 
And of course, what was overlooked was uh, the criminal justice system. So as a result of the strikes of 1918 and another one in 1919, the police got their federation, Yeah. Uh, obviously set up by statute under law, completely forbidding police officers to take any form of industrial action. And although it took a little bit later, uh, the prison service, or the home office rather, uh, came up with the prison officers representative board. Right. And you could have representatives on that board who would take uh, issues and matters to the governor. It wasn't the best solution because uh, we would have either been better off to have been left to be a proper trade union mm -hmm. or enshrine us in law and statute as a federation. Uh, the representative board was uh, was poor for both because it meant that if you're an effective representative with the representative board, the governor could actually uh, endorse a transfer to another establishment because the yeah. prison service had officers that were mobile grades and if you were told you need you were needed at another establishment, you pretty much had to go. Yeah. So that sadly continued for years and years and years. Of course, at the time we have uh, what was the Prison Officers Magazine, and you know my museum has uh, an original copy of that time, affectionately referred to as the Redden. Uh, its cover was red, and uh, there are even sort of like bits and pieces from here, which are from the uh, from the contributor from Wandsworth, giving it the list of people who are joining, you know, uh, entertainments, playing billiards. Uh, but the magazine itself did was a was at least a voice piece for staff to uh, get messages out there. But of course, then we come to the more crucial time of the late nineteen thirties. Prison officers' representative boards pretty much coming and working towards the idea that we do need our own trade union. Yeah. We do need to have a voice for ourselves, and it has to be seen alongside other trade unions within the civil service. Uh, so. Obviously, September 1939, the POA is finally recognised, but of course something else happened that particular <laughs> month and year, yes, yes. which it put the POA a little bit on hold, but by being the Prison Officers Association, as opposed to just being simply a representative board and then starting to really step up and be a trade union, you had your locally elected branch officials, yeah. they held meetings, they held votes, they agreed with certain forms of action, uh, and indeed kept on pestering the governor to uh, improve conditions and make things better. The first chairman of the POA at Wandsworth was Bill Ty, and he actually joined Wandsworth in the early 1930s. I have a photograph on the yes. display uh, in the museum. And, and some of the uh, you know, uh, minutes from, uh, from the very early days of the POA at Wandsworth quite neatly matched up by, uh, by some Governor's Journal stuff. Is that uh, on a particular POA meeting in September 1940, and the proposal was that s steel helmets be supplied to all officers. Because what you've got to remember uh, with the outbreak of the war, it would have been the prison officer's job to provide that first instance of air raid precautions as uh, firefighting, yeah. putting out incendiaries. Can't wait for the bar brigade to turn up. You've got to crack on with it yourself. And it did seem strange that even by 1940, prison officers hadn't been issued uh, with steel helmets, particularly when they're again on the roof of the jail or above the gate, you know, spotting and keeping an eye out where bombs and incendiaries may be falling. Yeah. Yes, yes. Uh, again, often and often made argument about personal protection equipment for prison staff. It's nothing new. <laughs> it's nothing new. Although slightly more tongue-in-cheek was a POA meeting in May 1941 where there had been complaints about the air raid shelters around the back of the jail being uh, waterlogged. Uh, so it was put uh, as local business. Shelters still waterlogged suggested that the water might be changed. 
So there's a, 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 a certain element of sarcasm there that well, if you yes. can't if you can't keep the water out, well, at least change the water so we don't catch anything. But because of the war, obviously a lot of staff who'd been ex-forces had been recalled to military service, and so certain allowances were made for staff to be kept beyond retirement age. Some staff rejoining, particularly the staff who were kept on and rejoining, were known as war auxiliary officers, and they're very useful in helping us out in that particular crisis. Of course, the post-war period came in with a Labour government, but unfortunately, there was no money to look at actually improving prisons, which is why mm. we still have a huge stock of Victorian jails housing prisoners. Uh, curious enough, between the wars, First World War and Second World War, the country actually closed prisons, and quite a lot of them. And despite the economic troubles of the Great Depression, Wall Street crash, Crime had, did not actually increase to uncontrollable levels. But the big difference between the, uh, the unemployment of those times and what we might class as more modern times is that it was adult unemployment, not youth unemployment. A family man with a family to look after and children to support is less likely to think of crime because he was already working up to the point he lost his job and he would just do his utmost to get another job. Yeah. Crime is not the first fallback. One thing that, uh, that came out of both the First World War and, you know, and the Second World War was the issue of, of prison officers who had, gone in, who had gone back to the military and then became commissioned officers. Certainly the dilemma after the First World War was that you had uh, someone who'd been uh, you know, a warder at, at a particular prison was now uh, a captain being demobilised. And there's no way because of the class system in this country that they were going to allow uh, someone holding the King's Commission to pound the landings of another prison. So it, uh, that actually triggered looking at providing training courses for staff and indeed all the staff who were coming back into the service holding the King's Commission were sent on specialist courses so they could become governor grades. It was further right. compounded at the end of the Second World yeah. War because they awarded more commissions to people who came from a class background that had not been of a previous class background. Yeah. In other words, well, if you're working class, goodness, you can lead, you can lead uh, you know, men and women efficiently. You, you know, you've got all the right attributes of leadership. There's your commission. Yeah. Again, you had the same problem, and but it was from that that they finally introduced officers' training. Prior to that, you had prisons that were allocated to do training, but the idea of a centralised training college didn't really come till after the Second World War. And I suppose if you had that decentralised arrangement, there was no overall planning, no strategic yeah. objective. You were lucky if you got training, but probably more often than not, you didn't. Well, certainly for the officers, you had to you know, join, you had to pass a civil service uh, examination and certain prisons in certain areas were then allocated to the training for staff. But uh, a lot of people thought, well, actually, if you, if you centralise the training, then the standard of training is for all prisons. It's not down to where well, you've got really good training in this area, but that one's not so good. Yeah. You put the best trainers in a central location or indeed a couple of uh, locations. You know, the prison service historically had Wakefield, Lay Hill and all officers were trained through those establishments. I have seen some officers training notes at the time. I've got uh, one here from an officer called Frank North, and a letter from the government at the time, Frank Ransley in the, Frank Ransley in the 1950s, uh, saying that uh, he'd been advised by the prison commissioners that he's been selected for training at this establishment, and therefore you report for duty at 9am on Monday, the next 28th instance, and that's May 1956. 
I've seen other staff training documentation, uh, one interesting one from the 1970s, where uh, the two-week program was, uh, was uh, pretty much written out on a stencil, and the first day was crossed out. It was uh, an officer called Dave Alcott, uh, long retired, and uh, he explained to me that, uh, yes, the POA had been taking industrial action, so he was simply told to <laughs> come back the next day. In terms of uh, in the law and the POA, there was one interesting item from the Minute Book at Wandsworth showing that a letter had been sent out in the, uh, in the early 1950s regarding capital punishment. Right. And he was simply asking the views of the Prison Officers Association from the different branches what their feeling was towards it. Wandsworth came back that uh, they, uh, they, appeared, they were in favour of it and they actually did go on record that they didn't think that someone on condemned cell duty would be necessarily impacted by that duty. But again, you know, from a historical perspective, mm. it was a very different time. And it is something that uh, the stresses and strains was, I would say, there was still a lot of them back in the 50s, 60s and what have you. A lot of staff being ex-service might have been a little bit more thick-skinned towards, uh, yeah. towards death, particularly if they had served in frontline combat duty in the Second World War where they would have seen it firsthand. But uh, it was, uh, you know, that was a different time and a different uh, mindset. It was, although I was reading somewhere that, that actually, actually the gallows in Wandsworth were kept in like, working order until the early 1990s. Yes, they were. Uh, when the death penalty was, uh, was abolished for uh, murder in Great Britain uh, in 1965. It wasn't abolished in Northern Ireland. That still remained on the books until the 70s. Even though the Labour government at the time were very quick in dismantling the gallows uh, around the country, very quick, the problem did uh, arise that there were still some remaining capital crimes on the statute book yeah. in the 60s. So when the question was put to, well, could you dismantle the gallows at Wandsworth and then perhaps rebuilt and put it back up again if it was ever needed, it was pointed out that you know, it was actually built into an integral part of the prison. You couldn't just simply rebuild it. So the decision was made that uh, Wandsworth would keep its gallows and keep it operational. So it did mean that it was yeah. tested every six months. One of the other things that, uh, that happened at Wandsworth that brought about a, a change of, uh, change of strategy was the escape of a great trainer on Robert Ronnie Biggs mm. on the 8th of July 1965. He was the second train robber to, uh, to get out. Uh, the previous year in August, Charlie Wilson had been sprung from Birmingham prison. And then uh, the spy, George Blake, was sprung from Wormwood Scrubs. Yeah. Uh, at the end of that, it, the government then decided to uh, appoint Lord Mountbatten to head up a commission into the particular escapes. And uh, following that, we had a lot more inter we had internal fencing put into the prison we had categorization from a to d ah oh, that's where that comes that's from that's all comes oh, from the Mountbatten right. report uh, patrol dogs were introduced uh, handheld radios for staff to communicate with each other whilst moving around the establishment so a lot of security improvements mm. came as the Mountbatten report but it was purely on the back of the high profile escapes yeah. because Wandsworth had uh, an escape in 1961 that put us into the Guinness Book of Records uh, when 10 men went over the wall. That didn't bring about any physical changes to prison security. It took the headline My grabbing criminals uh, to bring about the change in prison security. I said 10 men over the wall in 1961. My goodness, my goodness. The power of celebrity through the ages. Uh, most of the POA uh, workings at the time were 
again, rates of pay, working conditions, arguments about overcrowding, quarters. So in many ways, regular regular tra trade union matters on industrial Absolutely. relations. Yeah. But of course, the big change happened in the late 80s with Fresh Start. That was quite a fundamental change in terms and conditions for staff. It's, uh, I'd say its impact is probably even still being felt today because Fresh Start uh, you know, increased the basic salary of a prison officer by reducing the amount of overtime they would work. Uh, the prison service, after having done a survey of all quarters, decided they would start selling the quarters off. So, of course, the accommodation problems, particularly in you know, big London jails, uh, started to become acute by the end of the 90s and the 2000s. That's it. Everyone has to find accommodation as best they can. I do go back uh, slightly to what is the, sort of the uh, governor's question book uh, from the 1960s. And that the governor here the, in the early 60s was uh, a brigadier, Patton Walsh. And uh, the... Uh, the POA uh, went to the governor with the, the staff request that the GPO be approached to install a letterbox in the quarters area in view of the large number living in quarters and the distance from the nearest post box. And, and the governor went, agreed, contacted the GPO and the, uh, the post box sat round the back, you know, at the back of uh, the prison at Heathfield Square, still stands to this day. And there we go, that's a direct impact of the POA approaching the governor, asking to get something done. Now, come the, uh, come the, uh, the 1980s, well, what you've got to remember is that, again, there was still no money being put into prisons. No. The, the trickle of money that was, that was being put in wasn't going on a lot of the Victorian locals, if anything at all. And in the late 1980s, Wandsworth, again, still overcrowded. There's no sinks and toilets in cells. But the government at the time was looking to introduce new shift patterns and a new method of working. And I've seen from the minute books, there was lots of discussion, but the POA was not in agreement with the, uh, with, with the changes being put up. The, the original problem was actually running with uh, Governor Marsden, who then uh, left the jail and was replaced by Graham Clark. So uh, looking at the minute books, it's quite clear that Graham Clark was inheriting the problem. And it came to a head where the staff were refusing to work sh uh, new shift patterns and everyone who turned up at the gate was being offered, will you work this new shift pattern? No. And they were given notices of suspension. So it's quite often described as a strike, uh, but it wasn't really. It's kind of it's the employer. Close, it's the em closer to a lockout, isn't yes, it? Yes, the employer was suspending every member of staff who was refusing to work the new shift pattern. So, of course, what the staff did, because most still lived around the back, they're available for duty every single day should there have been a change of heart. And the ones with POA did uh, seek support of the NEC. What they thought at the time, the support was somewhat lukewarm. But eventually, yeah, all the staff did return to work. But that's after the police had actually uh, gone in with far more numbers than there would ever be prison officers yeah. to uh, to run the prison. Yeah. So whilst the dust settled uh, on that, one thing that uh, that I noticed, uh, even though I wasn't here at the time of that, that particular dispute, but uh, I was here within the year, that uh, a lot of staff found that uh, transfer applications that they put in were suddenly being granted. <laughs> Just a coincidence, I'm uh, sure. I'm sure, just a coincidence uh, that, uh, yeah, there seem to be a number of people leaving the establishment, you know, because 
when the, when the quarters were always readily available, it meant that no matter what part of the country you came from, you wouldn't be always guaranteed a prison in the area that you lived or grew up in. You simply went to the prison that needed you. So, of course, a lot of staff were always hoping they could get a transfer back to the area that they grew up in. Uh, but like I said, uh, after the dispute, that these uh, these moves seem to uh, pick up a pace. Yeah, just just I, 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 as we're wandering around, just things suddenly do catch my eye, like the main gate key and lock cover, the key to, to Wandsworth is, is on display here. Well, that particular key uh, is interesting in as much as that a number of people have said uh, or they remember, you know, a key being given as a, as a retirement gift to someone. Yeah. But of course, I pointed out they would have had more than one key. <laughs> and of course, the POA committee at the time of the dispute, there was, uh, I know there was ter- Terry McLaren. He was uh, on the, you know, being interviewed quite a bit. Other members of the committee uh, were, you know, working hard in the background, uh, trying to keep, uh, you know, everyone, um, everyone on board. Mm. And I have to admit, you know, the response rate uh, for prison officers taking that action, because again, you know, uh, they weren't being paid for those days oh, no, they weren't, they not. weren't in work, uh, was uh, was excellent. Of course, then come the early nineties, you had uh, Roger Grave came in with a with a crew to do turning of the screws. Mm-hmm. And that showed again, yeah, industrial relations issues not being particularly yeah. being particularly good. And it was by then that we actually started having uh, what was known as well a little bit before that, but we had uh, the cross sex postings where you where you got uh, female prison officers working in male establishments. Yeah. I mean, when, when I'm often asked the question, you know, how long, you know, when did we have uh, female officers working in Wandsworth? The actual answer is well, 1852. Uh, a smaller section of the prison yeah. was uh, for the sole uh, occupancy of female prisoners, and they were looked after entirely by female officers. The female jail actually closed in, I think, 1880, uh, and although there were some female staff retained for receptions, the last had gone by the 1890s. But uh, the, most people's image of a prison officer is usually a white male, possibly with scars and, and tattoos. So it's something that you know, we do come in all, all shapes and sizes. So the issue, uh, again, with, with industrial relations, uh, certainly here at Wandsworth, you know, they tick on. Another turning of the screws program was made in the early 2000s. And there were obviously the issues uh, back in the 1990s uh, when the Conservative government introduced the uh, the Criminal Justice Act of 1994, which made it illegal for anyone to induce a prison officer or person employed as such in a private prison to withdraw their labour. And of course, mm. it was on the back of well, public order and criminal justice. It was uh, a piece of employment law legislation that was put through a justice bill. Yeah. Uh, whether it would have survived as a piece of employment legislation had it been put to the House of Commons, I don't know. But uh, that was, uh, to me, uh, you know, quite wrong to uh, slip that legislation in because then you were denying workers the right to, uh, well, the right to strike or the, simply the right to withdraw their labour to uh, force their employer to negotiate on particular issues. The Strange Ways prison riot of 1990 was Britain's longest and most violent prison riot in living memory. I asked Stuart if Wandsworth had witnessed any serious disturbances over the years. There's nothing in the record that shows that anything got to anywhere near Strange Ways proportions. Historically, there were issues here which uh, actually go back to the First World War. Obviously, once uh, 
they started taking more people into the military, uh, the military needed more prisons. So they didn't have time to build them, so they simply asked the prison commissioners, uh, can we have uh, sections of your prisons or, mm. or, or just take over an entire prison to uh, house military prisoners? So Wandsworth gave up the smaller section of the jail, GH&K, as a military detention military detention barracks. You're, you're, I don't think you'll ever find the term military prison or army prison. They don't call them prisons. They no. call them detention centres, detention barracks. And so that's what we had you know, during the First World War. Of course, come 1916, there was a few issues because uh, there weren't enough volunteers to uh, get themselves slaughtered on the, uh, on the Western Front. So conscription had to come in and there were people who didn't want to uh, fight. Uh, and so you had uh, uh, boards that were set up to hear people's reasons for why they weren't going to fight. The most strongest one was uh, deep religious conviction, yeah. but that wasn't always the case. So you ended up with uh, conscientious objectors yeah. being housed in the military prison. Curious enough, in 1916, there was another event uh, over in Ireland with the yeah. Easter Rising, yeah. Yeah. and uh, we had 200 uh, men who had been uh, gathered up after that event, also held in Wandsworth. Uh, we, also had, we also had an American by the name of Fox who was simply rounded up with anyone else who was, uh, well, I say loosely connected. And like with the roundup in uh, in Ireland, they were usually scooping up anyone mm. uh, connected with it or not. Uh, but we also uh, had Arthur Griffith. He was here and he was the president of Sinn Féin. Of course, five years later, he was back in London in the process of negotiating the Free State and the treaty that uh, separated Ireland yeah. from, the, uh, from the UK. Later on in the war, again, with the industrial relations issues in the country, uh, conscientious objectors now start to include trade unionists, socialists, communists. Yeah. Uh, one of those was Guy Aldred. And uh, the prison's discipline system pretty much broke down in 1918, inasmuch as that the commandant of the detention barracks, Lieutenant Colonel Brook, was removed from post because of his treatment of conscientious objectors. Mm -hmm. Always interesting to note that even in war, they still had to follow the rules of treatment of prisoners. The governor, Captain Brett Farrant of the, or we could say the civil side of the prison, yeah. died in service. And the changeover of leadership allowed the, uh, allowed the left-wingers, because uh, they had support and rowdy support outside the prison gates as well, uh, to start uh, organising themselves. Of course, that's that's the thing about prisons. Uh, you're actually now locking people up who know how to organise. Indeed, yeah. So a yeah. temporary governor was uh, dispatched to Wandsworth, uh, Major Blake, and he arrived at the prison, went on to the centre, escorted by the chief officer, to say, what's that noise? And in his book, he said he remembers hearing something about a flag, which is almost certainly the red flag. And the chief uh, uh, officer tells him, oh, don't worry, sir, that's just the COs, the conscientious objectors. They're having a meeting. Now, this is Wandsworth Prison in 1980. They're having a meeting. What? I mean, it just begs belief that, yes, there was a meeting with the conscientious objectors. Yes, socialists, trade unionists and communists uh, holding a meeting. That's what we do. We propose motions. <laughs> we pass them. We thank each other for speaking. And then we act. He did actually restore order and was subject to an inquiry himself. However, he was actually exonerated mm -hmm. from, uh, from any ill-doing, but he left Wandsworth fairly quickly to take up his main appointment at Pentonville. Right. But uh, that was the one thing about uh, organised labour. And again, in the 1920s, we had, uh, is it Wal Hannington? He was in here 
on some really old law regarding I think uh, sedition of some kind, and this was uh, this was largely get I think get rid of people because the government at the time knew the general strike was in the in the yeah. wind. So they started managed, they started throwing uh, again trade unionists inside prison to uh, to keep them out of the way. It is always something of a bit of an irony that you know as a, as a trade union we've actually locked up other trade unionists, but that just yeah. goes with the charity working in the criminal justice system. Indeed. What do you see as being the future of of this museum? And of of museums telling the telling the story of this of the criminal justice system and the people who work in it. Well, for this museum, the ones with Prison Museum, uh, it's something I do in my free time. Occasionally, it'll be opened uh, during official working hours, uh, depending on what the what who the visitor is, uh, or part of an induction process. And when I retire, I'll continue looking after it in my free time as well. It's a fascinating you know, uh, subject. Oh, uh, yes. Absolutely. Uh, I, I always joke with people that usually at the end of a person's service, you might have a cardboard box of a few old epaulets, a few badges, perhaps the odd photograph. Well, I've got an entire museum, you know, and it's uh, and it's right next door to where I work. It, it is fantastic. If, if, if listeners want to find out more, about the collection or about even the possibility of visiting, what, what can they do? Uh, send an email to Wandsworth Prison Museum at justice.gov.uk. Uh, there is an automated reply to that particular email address because, yes, I have to fit the museum around my work pattern and, uh, and a host of other commitments that I've got as well. Uh, so uh, if you if provide your patient, you'll get a reply back and then we'll try and sort something out. That's brilliant, Stuart. Thank you very much indeed. The stories of the Wandsworth Prison Museum and the development of the Prison Officers Association are interlinked. Then, as now, the POA can and does look after members irrespective of where they work, who they work for, and what is going on in the world around them. So, if you haven't signed up yet, speak to your local POA rep or head over to poauk.org.uk to find out how to join and more about the work the union does on behalf of its members. Thank you for listening to the POA podcast. We hope you like what you've heard and will join us for the next edition. Until then, thank you and goodbye. POA podcast is presented by me, Simon Sapper. Music is by Scott Holmes.